Good evening. The former head of a police union and the failure to investigate. The police commissioner's record and the governor says it's time to mask up again. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, December 14th, 2021. An employee of the Kentucky Candle Factory, where eight workers were killed by a tornado, said today that a supervisor threatened her with written disciplinary action if she went home early because storms were approaching. Haley Condor, who worked at the Mayfield Consumer Products Factory on and off for 10 years, also questioned why the company didn't encourage workers to go home or at least give them a better understanding of the danger. Between a first tornado siren around 6 p.m. Friday and another one around 9 p.m. shortly before the tornado hit. They, the company, had from 6 o'clock to 9 o'clock to allow us to go home to tell us really what was going on and that we needed to prepare ourselves for the worst, Condor said in a phone interview with the Associated Press. It was like nothing, it was nothing like that. Not one supervisor told us what was really going on, she added. A spokesperson for the company insisted that employees were free to leave any time. More than 100 people were working on holiday candle orders when the twister leveled the facility. The scale of the damage initially stoked fears that scores of workers could be found dead in the rubble. The company later said many employees who survived left the site and went to homes with no phone service, adding to the confusion over who was missing. Since then, all workers have been accounted for. That's according to state and local officials who have spoken to the company. Louisville Emergency Management Director uh, E.J. Myman said late Monday that authorities now have a high level of confidence that nobody is left in the building. The factory supplies candles to retailers, including Bath and Body Works. It's the country's third largest employer. Mayfield, home to 10,000 residents and the candle factory, suffered some of the worst damage in the country. The tornado outbreak that killed at least 88 people, 74 of them in Kentucky, cut a path of devastation from Arkansas, where a nursing home was destroyed, to Illinois, where an Amazon distribution center was heavily damaged. Six people died in the Illinois warehouse collapse and the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration, as that's known as OSHA, has opened an investigation into what happened there. The tornadoes also killed four in Tennessee, two in Arkansas, and two in Missouri. And in COVID news, New York State Governor Kathy Hochul made it official. There's a new mask mandate. Vaccination also for New York State, but this time it comes with an expiration date. January 15th. At a briefing today, the governor said she's frustrated to report that since Thanksgiving in New York, COVID-19 cases have increased by 58 percent. Hospitalizations due to the virus have increased 70 percent in that time as well. At the same time, she encouraged more people to get vaccinated and get their booster shots if they really if they qualify to do so, as the Omicron variant of the virus has the potential to further the spread of COVID-19. On Friday, after consultation with many individuals, including a call to the head of the Association of Counties that I placed myself, uh, who said they support what we're doing and they understand it, as well as my calls to uh, individual county executives, as well as a call that my staff did, as well as calls to the Business Council, State of New York, the Partnership for New York, as well as the the, uh, Council of Mayors. And many, many calls were put out on Thursday to give the heads up of what we are thinking of doing at the time in light of the numbers that we saw continuing to escalate upward. And I so therefore on Friday after consultation with many individuals, including our Department of Health, Dr. Mary Bassett, uh, we determined that 
My priorities uh, will be continue to be furthered by having a statewide uh, mask requirement. And the objective is, as I've said all along, it is twofold. Protect the health of New Yorkers and protect the health of our economy. And this is a short-term measure. It has a time frame associated with it. And if you want to contrast what we dealt with in the past, it was open-ended. There was a lot of uncertainty. And I believe that given that we're in a very different place now, that we have the ability to let people know that this has a deadline on it. I'm going to be assessing our numbers and hopefully progress that has been made by January 15th. And the whole purpose of this, protect individuals' lives, particularly during what we're experiencing right now, which is a holiday surge. And that was the governor speaking earlier today about the surge that's affecting New York. There are now 38 confirmed cases of the Omicron variant in the state, including 23 in New York City. So far, 3,399,017 booster shots have been distributed in New York statewide. She added more than 3,000 people in New York State are hospitalized with COVID-19. Not everybody's happy with the idea of mandates of vaccinations, masks, or anything else to do with the COVID-19 pandemic. Parents and prominent Staten Island activists are protesting COVID-19 vaccination mandates outside Our Lady Star of the Sea School in Huguenot. That's part of Staten Island on Monday morning. That was yesterday, one week ahead of the deadline for staff of Catholic and private schools to get the shot. A crowd of about 40 people had doubled an hour later. No mandate to educate is one of the slogans being chanted by the group standing behind barricades near the school on Amboy Road. And in more state news, the New York State Nurses Association alleges that more than 650 vacant nursing jobs among three Bronx hospitals haven't been filled, adding to an overall staffing shortage. Michaela Savitt reports. New York Nurses Association members continue to speak out with allegations of understaffing in New York City hospitals, and they're calling for more rapid hires at multiple locations in the Bronx. For eight years, Benny Matthew has been an ER nurse at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx. He's also a director at large for Nisna, and says recruiting and retaining nurses was hard even before the pandemic. Now he claims patient care is compromised even further by low staffing and lack of space. Most of the time, they are having over 120, 140 patients in the ER. So that means patients are packed like sardines. There is no privacy, you know, when the doctor or the nurse is talking to the patient. You know, everyone else around that patient is listening to everything. In response to the allegations, a Bronx Montefiore spokesperson maintains they work every day to fill any vacancies and explore new recruitment and retention strategies. A rally held outside Montefiore Moses yesterday capped off a month of demonstrations at different New York City hospitals to draw attention to the staffing allegations. Matthew says one part of the problem is an incredibly high turnover rate at the hospital, even among temporary nurses. If a new nurse comes to our emergency room, he can have 20 or more patients and it is really traumatic for that person and they end up quitting after a few weeks. Matthew also lives in the Bronx and says while he loves helping his community, working in understaffed conditions comes at a great personal cost. Your personal relationship can get damaged, your attitude can change, your behavior can change, you are always frustrated. So it does have a negative personal effect on me. Come January, every hospital in New York must establish minimum staffing standards for intensive and critical care units 
under new state law. I'm Michaela Savitt for New York News Connection. And thanks, Michaela. New York's main ethics and lobbying regulator will require former Governor Andrew Cuomo to return the proceeds from his book about the COVID-19 pandemic. Cuomo has 30 days to turn over the money to State Attorney General Letitia James's office. But James might face some complications. Cuomo placed $1 million from the book deal into a blind trust for his daughters. He's also donated half a million dollars to the United Way in New York State. Cuomo is reportedly owed more than $5 million for the book. Cuomo resigned August 24th after James's office released a report detailing allegations of sexual harassment and inappropriate behavior by Cuomo. A joint committee looking into Cuomo's actions as governor says he used state money and personal personnel to help write the book. But Cuomo's lawyers say the attorney general's actions today are unconstitutional, exceed its own authority, and appear to be driven by political interests rather than the facts and the law. Cuomo's book is titled American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Epidemic. It's published by Random House. And the House is debating a measure approved last night to bring contempt of Congress charges against former President Donald Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows. The vote last night was taken by the House committee looking into the January 6th insurrection that led supporters of defeated President Donald Trump to invade the Capitol and attempt to stop the official counting of electoral votes and the ceremonial naming of Joe Biden as the new president. The assault on the democratic process has become an infamous chapter in the history of the Capitol, and the vote was unanimous. Chairman, I move that the committee favorably report to the House the committee's report on a resolution recommending that the House of Representatives find Mark Randall Meadows in contempt of Congress for refusal to comply with a subpoena duly issued by the Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. The question is on the motion to favorably report to the House. Those in favor say aye. 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 Those opposed aye. say no. The clerk will report the vote. Mr. Chairman, on this vote, there are nine ayes and zero noes. The motion is agreed to. The vice chair is recognized. As the mob overran the U.S. Capitol last January, some of Donald Trump's highest profile defenders in the media and even his own son sent urgent text messages to the White House chief of staff urging him to get the then president to do more to stop the violence. Representative Liz Cheney, one of two GOP members of the committee, read the sometimes disturbing and sometimes comical texts during last night's hearing. These text messages leave no doubt the White House knew exactly what was happening here at the Capitol. Members of Congress, the press, and others wrote to Mark Meadows as the attack was underway. One text Mr. Meadows received said, quote, we are under siege here at the Capitol. Another, quote, they have breached the Capitol. In a third, Mark, Protesters are literally storming the Capitol, breaking windows on doors, rushing in. Is Trump going to say something? A fourth, there's an armed standoff at the House chamber door. And another from someone inside the Capitol. We are all helpless. Dozens of texts, including from Trump administration officials, urged immediate action by the president. Quote, POTUS has to come out firmly and tell the protesters to dissipate. Someone is going to get killed. In another, Mark, 
He needs to stop this now. A third, in all caps, tell them to go home. A fourth, and I quote, POTUS needs to calm this shit down. Indeed, according to the records, multiple Fox News hosts knew the president needed to act immediately. They texted Mr. Meadows, and he has turned over those texts. Quote, Mark, the president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home. This is hurting all of us. He is destroying his legacy, Laura Ingram wrote. Please get him on TV, destroying everything you have accomplished, Brian Kilmeade texted. Quote, can he make a statement, ask people to leave the Capitol, Sean Hannity urged. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough, Donald Trump Jr. texted. Meadows responded, quote, I'm pushing it hard, I agree. Still, President Trump did not immediately act. Donald Trump Jr. texted again and again, urging action by the president. Quote, we need an Oval Office address. He has to lead now. It has gone too far and gotten out of hand, end quote. But hours passed without necessary action by the president. Representative Liz Cheney. In more Capitol Hill news, in the latest attempt to move forward with a lawsuit to block enforcement of Texas's six-week abortion ban, lawyers for abortion providers asked the Supreme Court today to immediately transfer a certified copy of its decision from last week back to a district court judge in order to restart proceedings in short order. The Supreme Court last Friday allowed the controversial law to remain on the books. It did clear a narrow path for providers to try to sue a small subset of Texas licensing officials to try and block enforcement. But in order for them to do that, the Supreme Court needs to send the paperwork to the lower court. The providers are asking Justice Neil Gorsuch to pen Friday's opinion to bypass the normal 25-day waiting period. Can pro-choice Activists, attorneys, and organizations trust the court? Well, in an article in the Progressive Magazine, former Judge Bill Blum says, since John Roberts' appointment as Chief Justice in 2005, the U.S. Supreme Court has handed down a spate of transformational ultra-right decisions on a dizzying array of subjects, including voting rights, gerrymandering, union organizing, the death penalty, qualified immunity for police, gun control, campaign finance, and most recently, abortion. Adding the dizzying rightward shift of the court may have the effect of undermining public confidence in the court. They are political in the sense that they exercise power over uh, our society. And they are political in the sense that they are uh, nominated by presidents who are seeking to advance political agendas. But they're not supposed to be political in the sense that they dial up the Republican National Committee or whoever is leading the party and ask, well, how should I vote in this particular case? There is supposed to be some degree of judicial independence. And in the past, there has been, uh, in the recent past, even Republican appointees have uh, moved more gradually uh, in the past to the center. We're not seeing that anymore. 
And I, and I am quite concerned about people like Barrett, whose theological views are so deeply ingrained that they may predominate over her interpretation of law. And I have no faith in Alito, Thomas, or Gorsuch to actually follow prior precedents. I think that these three are moving to establish an agenda. Now, where Kavanaugh falls in on all of this is that he now seems ready to buy into the argument that if um, we overturn a prior precedent, that's maybe not a bad thing. That's a good thing because he can point to all of these Warren Court decisions that overturned precedents, and that's what he was saying in Dobbs. And the problem with that is that those Warren Court decisions expanded individual rights. They didn't contract individual rights. And contrary to what he said during the oral argument, it is not possible for the Supreme Court to be neutral on abortion. It simply isn't possible to be neutral on abortion and return the matter to the states. That's not the kind of federalism that promotes neutrality. That's reminiscent not of Brown versus Board of Education, which he invoked, but more reminiscent of Plessy versus Ferguson and the kind of reactionary federalism that we once had in the United States and that was once dominant. What was Plessy? Plessy is the 1896 decision in which the Supreme Court upheld the doctrine of separate but equal. It dealt with uh, seating on uh, railways, uh, railroads in uh, Louisiana. And this, the doctrine of separate but equal basically said, we're going to leave it up to the states. And if the states want to provide uh, law, if they want to pass laws that say um, black people get one set of schools or, or, or they have to go on a certain railroad car and whites go on another, well, that's fine as long as they're equal. But, of course, we all know that they can't be equal and never were. And that's what Brown versus Board of Education overturned. So Plessy is the decision that Brown invalidated. And, and so you're I, saying this right-wing group of Supreme Court justices are doing the work of Plessy? They are going to do the work of Plessy if they return abortion to the states, because you know that half the states are going to outlaw abortion if that happens. The Texas statute, as bad as it is, is not the worst that's yet to come if Roe and Casey are overturned. And that's former Judge Bill Blum reporting for WBAI on that, the situation with the Supreme Court of the United States. You can read more at The Progressive. His article is called Expanding the Supreme Court of the United States New Urgency. He says It is necessary now to add members to the United States Supreme Court to prevent it from being totally lost to the Republicans. And back to New York City, the New York Civil Liberties Union says in a new report that fine serious discipline was meted out in just 1% of cases investigated by a city watchdog agency known as the Civilian Civilian Complaint Review Board, the CCRB, over the past two decades. The report asserts the NYPD simply can't police itself. The New York Civil Liberties Report cop-out analyzing 20 years of records proving NYPD impunity, reviewed 180,700 complaints with the Civilian Complaint Review Board and found that officers were disciplined in just 4,283 times, about 1%. Well, 
this is part of a larger problem, as we found in an article today that was published on the new site ProPublica.org by journalist Jake Pearson. It's titled, Years Before a Police Union Leader Was Raided by the FBI, Local Investigators Didn't Pursue Allegations Against Him. It's a story of the charges of misconduct or claims of misconduct against Sergeant Ed Mullins, the powerful leader of the NYPD Sergeants Union, who was forced to resign after the FBI raided his home and office just a few weeks ago. Pearson says that at the heart of the matter is the fact that there Police unions, including the SBA and the PBA, the Patrolmen's Benevolent Association and the Sergeant's Benevolent Association, have been collecting millions and millions of dollars for pensions and other purposes, including the defense of police who are be under investigation by the police department's own Department of Investigation and internal investigators, have just not been audited in years. And it's really unclear what purpose that money goes to. And it illustrates, as Pearson says in his article, that the police department and the police leaders and the union leaders are acting with a certain impunity when it comes to the millions and millions of dollars of taxpayer funds that are put in their trust. So we spoke earlier today with Jake Pearson, the author of the article in ProPublica. Yeah, the story gets into a decision that was issued in 2009 by a federal judge in Manhattan related to a lawsuit that Ed Mullins brought soon after he became union president of the sergeants in 2002. And that was a case, a sort of bread and butter labor case about overtime and overtime wages that the sergeants believed they were owed. In the course of that case, the city of New York suspected that some of the sergeants and, and plaintiffs in Mullins' case were lying under oath during their depositions. And so Internal Affairs at the NYPD launched an investigation to determine if they were lying. That would have been a misconduct charge. And the union bucked and said that it was retaliation, that they were being targeted for participating in a labor action. And a decision issued in 2009 sided with the union and sort of uh, backed the city off. Just a couple years after that, these allegations of misconduct and wrongdoing started trickling into the NYPD. One from a tipster in 2011 was about misuse of union funds, alleging that he was misappropriating funds and exchanging gifts for favors. Another one came a year later that detailed how Mullins tried to intervene in the arrest of, a, of an associate on Long Island who had been pulled over in the middle of the night for driving drunk. And in a, a third one came in about a 911 call to which police responded regarding a domestic incident that involved a confrontation with the neighbor. In none of those cases did the NYPD investigate them, and the story details the effect that that 2009 judicial decision had on the city and its calculation about how it could move forward with them. Our reporting shows that they referred them to DOI, the Department of Investigation, and the end result is that they were not investigated by the city. It seems like uh, the police unions are more powerful than the mayors. We quote Bruce McIver, who has led the Office of Labor Relations under Koch. He says that this sort of chain of custody of this tip and what happened and played out in Mullins' case is sort of an example of this fragmented oversight system and how city officials who bear responsibility for keeping them in check and scrutinizing them often don't in no small part because they're fear, they fear the sort of public pushback they can get from the unions and from the police unions. He's a political guy. He took a strong political position. 
Yeah, it's true. In the story, we used the term, used his perch atop the union to become a pro-police provocateur. But, you know, increasingly, especially in the last couple of years, Mullins on Twitter, on Fox News, on podcasts, sort of ramped up the rhetoric that sort of in many cases imitated what President Trump and his allies were saying when it came to policing, criminal justice, sort of the law and order narrative. The context of that, of course, is the killing of George Floyd and the counter movement of a growing number of people in America and New York and in other cities who are reconciling with the power of police, accountability for their actions, Mullins played a vocal and front and center role as that conversation has played out. Is there anything you'd like to add? Beyond the NYPD and DOI, the city controller has the authority to examine municipal unions that get city money and audit them anytime it wants under this 1977 directive. In 2014, there were allegations that Ed Mullins was misappropriating union funds. Something came out publicly in The Chief, the paper that covers the unions. The controller's office, after that story came out, never audited any SBA fund that takes in city money. They take in, you know, close to $30 million a year in public dollars. And in fact, the controller's office hasn't edited a police union fund since 2009. They haven't edited, they haven't audited the SBA since 2003. The last time a city-financed, union-administered legal defense fund for cops, patrol cops, was last audited in 1994. So there's a long history of at least that agency, not exercising a lot of scrutiny when it comes to how taxpayer dollars are spent by, by police unions. New York Civil Liberties Union report that says that cops never get to trouble for uh, CCRB complaints. I did a story in March, tucked away sort of an obscure clause in the union contract that was uh, struck in the 1980s that guarantees taxpayers every year will fund $2 million or so, I think more than $2 million out of our own pocket, that goes into a defense fund for cops to get lawyers when the city's law department, Corporation Council, won't defend them for their actions on the job. Even when the city's own lawyers decide that a cop's behavior is indefensible, taxpayers in New York are still on the hook to fund their legal fees. Uh, it's one of the many ways in which the police unions have used their power at the negotiating table over the years to amass protections that workers in other industries just don't have. And that is Jake Pearson. He's the author of Years Before a Police Union Leader Was Raided by the FBI. Local investigators didn't pursue allegations against him. He's talking about Sergeant Ed Mullins, the former head of the Sergeant's Benevolent Association. We're going to uh, tomorrow go to Anthony Beckford of the BLM Brooklyn organization to have his comments on these developments and to talk about the Basio administration and what they have or haven't done in respect to police misconduct in New York City. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, December 14, 2021. The news is produced of Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.